This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast. And today we have Mike Crandall. He's the CEO of Digital Beachhead. Hey, nice to be here. Thanks, Bob. Mike, thanks so much for taking time. Tell us about your business and who you serve. Well, my company is Digital Beachhead. It's a term I coined on a performance report back when I was in the military. And the commander asked me, you know, what the heck is a digital beachhead and how dare you say you can protect it and you're in charge of it and you're so good at it. And when I explained that he has email and that's what I protected. And so instead of a typical beachfront, you had the digital one, which was everywhere. And then his eyes lit up and he was like, oh, dear Lord, the digital beachhead is everywhere. Two years later, the Undersecretary of Defense used it in a speech saying that adversary had secured a digital beachhead on our network because they went from my performance report to a wing award on up. So the Pentagon had heard the word and it got incorporated in a speech. So I bought the name. And we primarily focus on cybersecurity for the federal government, but I am now branching out to provide cyber risk management for small and medium-sized businesses. I think people don't understand the designations of many government contracting businesses, and you have a specific designation. Yes, I'm a service-disabled, veteran-owned small business, SVDOB, you know, Acronyms. for days. And so going back a little bit, so you served in the Air Force. Yes, I did. And you served over in the Middle East. So maybe talk about a little bit of that experience and how that started to help you start this business. Well, back in the day before we had networks and during the first Gulf War, there were only a few PCs around. And so I had actually gotten in trouble for breaking into one of those PCs. Commander asked, explained how much money they paid to protect them. And they had software that was supposed to be security. And it was a two keystroke entry to get to the DOS prompt. So he effectively destroyed my I'm in trouble paperwork and said, you are now in charge of small computer security for the Air Force. And I was one young kid who didn't really know much. So they sent me to schools and I learned how to do some basic hacking and defensive work as well as offensive work. And in those days, you couldn't network in to break into a computer. So we had to go touch them. So if the adversary had some computer systems that they needed information off of, we had to go physically to the machine, wherever it may be, to gather the data. So I got to work with some uh, much more powerful and influential military people. The Special Forces folks dragged me along as their computer boy. And <laughs> the computer boy. Computer I like boy. That. Yes. You know, I trained with them, but I wasn't raised as one. I just tagged along for the ride, mainly. You know, I think about you know, the progress we all take to, to develop our career. And so, you know, you had the Air Force time, and then you had the time in the field. And at some point, you rotate out of the military. All right. And maybe it would be useful for the folks that are curious is how do you go from being in the military and doing what you did to being qualified or where to do government contracting? What was your path? Oh, well, when I retired, um, I was in almost 21 years. I got out like anyone else and thought, well, it's time to get a government contracting job and go work doing the same job I'm doing, but for more money and wearing civilian clothes. Yeah, that, we used to call it double dipping, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah double you, dipping. And you got to double dip for a couple of months while you were on your uh, yeah, terminal leave yes, at the end. Yep, yep. And I talk at the Air Force Academy a lot. I talk to the people who are getting out as part of their transition class. And I tell them, you, you can save up like three months for that terminal leave. And I thought, well, I'm going to do nothing the first month. I'm going to enjoy a 30-day vacation because everyone needs cyber people. I'm going to get a job right away. And then uh, 30 days go by. Then I start putting out my resumes thinking, okay, here comes my job. 30 days later, I'm like, oh, I hope I get a job. <laughs> they did start rolling in. It just wasn't as instantaneous as, you know, I thought. And I ended up working for a large firm. I started doing proposal writing. And I won a few things that I wrote. 
So they let me manage the contracts. They said, if you kill it, you can eat it. So if I won the, won the work, I could PM the work. or PM. Program manage the work. Okay. And then uh, from having a few contracts I was program managing to where they're like, well, we need to hire program managers. You don't have enough time. And I became the director over the program managers. So I kind of worked from the guy writing it to being the director of operations for the company. Did you have any of that experience in the, in the Air Force? None. The only thing I had, and I tell the guys in the transition this, is you are taught to adapt, overcome. You are taught to figure things out. And so everything was just a process. So what is the process? Um, when I first got my program management gig, well, after the first thing I won, go into the senior vice president and what do you need? What's this mean? And he gave me the spreadsheets and told me that, you know, we're looking about profit margins and this is what the people make. And they said, well, this is your wrap rate. And what's a wrap rate? You know, please explain that to me, sir. And he explains it all to me. And what is a wrap rate? The wrap rate is basically what your company puts on for costs, G&A, which is basic accounting and running of your company, general expenses. Um, tack that on to what an employee is making. And effectively, that's what you're charging the customer. And he said, you want your percentage to go up and what you're making. And you have to do that either by growing the contract, getting rid of employees who've been there a long time and hiring in newer, fresher blood for less money, or there's all these different ways to do it. And so, yeah, I just jumped in. I guess the thing the military taught me was not to be afraid. Yeah. You know, I know what crappy looks like. It doesn't look like this. Right. And my wife always yells at me because I've told her many times, I'm like, oh, please calm down. We're not being shot at, which doesn't make her very happy at all to say that she needs to calm down because we're not taking fire. But uh, she's since adapted to that and tells other people, just calm down. You're not taking fire. Yeah, no dirt in my food. Right. Yeah. No one's lobbing grenades at me at night. And so I could just face and ask questions. I wasn't afraid to ask questions. I learned that in the military. If you don't ask, you don't know. So ask as many questions as you can, figure it out. And I knew math. I was okay in math. I'm a computer guy. <laughs> yeah, we do more than just charge hills. So <laughs> I used to tell my friends I did a lot of joint assignments and they always say, you know, we're the chair force or the air farce. And I would say, well, our officers, I should say your officers look at you and say, there's a hill. Now go take it. You're not all going to make it, but you're going to take this hill. And I said, us air force guys look at our officers and say, well, when you hop into that plane, sir, I do hope you come back. And then I go get a meal at the chow hall while they're off fighting. So I said, which one was the smarter branch to you? <laughs> yeah. Having been in the Army, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty apparent for a long time. Right. But, so, you know, so, you know, I think about, so you got the military experience, you've the computer space. You were kind of in the leading edge of when computers were really becoming mainstream. Yes. And then I can remember trying to network computers before networking was a thing. That's right. I go back as far as Windows 3.5.1, which is where they took Windows 3.5, and the 1 was the networking component. What was the networking software? Was it Nor? They had Novell. Novell followed how could, that. How could I forget Novell? Yep. I learned on Novell. Uh, Banyan Vines. The Marines used a lot of Banyan Vines. And I was fortunate enough that in 90, 91, 92, I worked with General Blaisdell. He was colonel then. And General Skinner, who was a captain then, and we developed Barrier Reef, which is the whole idea of having a DMZ and a boundary protection system and defense in depth. And it was basically five kids that didn't know anything in a basement building a network with Linux boxes and a Cisco picks. And then that got passed out to the whole DOD. We were the first. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. And no one cared. Like if the email went down, commanders had their secretaries printing them out and mm -hmm. then writing on it and the mm -hmm. secretary finishing it, and, sending and it out. Unlike now. Right, or it's right to your desk and everyone needs it on their phone. 
And I said that the military people now have an issue because the young guys coming in because everything's click a box. The software comes, and if you want a five meg email box, they click a box and say five, and it's all done for them. Where we were going into the every line of code and saying, okay, what does this do? That was bad. <laughs> Build it all again and start from scratch. And so you, we got to understand how things worked from the kind of the bits up versus plug and play. So for you, I thought and we were talking before the show is that I said, well, how'd you get trained to do this? And you went to work for a company where you did it. And yes. so you got OJT on the company for a period of time. Yeah, I worked for that large company for five years and they thought foolishly was going around to every office, like pricing and the marketing departments and saying, hey, let me help you. You know, if I'm writing these proposals and I'm winning a few jobs and I'm managing these contracts, um, what do you do and how do you do it? And um, at first they were like, well, don't take my job. And I was like, no, I'm not after your job. I'm happy doing what I'm doing, but I can help you by doing 90% of your work. And then they perked up and thought that was wonderful if I was just going to be supporting them. But I learned every position in the company. So when I finally moved out on my own, I knew how to price. I knew what the wraps were and how they were divided and created and G&A and how it was incorporated. I think about that just as it's the old apprentice program, essentially. And you go through and and you apprentice and either they make you an offer that you can't refuse to leave for or you already know enough to leave. When you at the break point, you're going like, okay, I'm considering going to do this on my own. And you finally made the decision when you went home and talked to your bride. What was that discussion like? effectively evolved that since I am a service disabled veteran, (laughs) I have a retirement and VA payment that will cover the house. So we won't be homeless. (laughs) First order business. We will not be homeless. Uh, We may have to live on ramen for a while, but can I have two years to live on the ramen? (laughs) I had savings, but you know, the the joke was we'll live bare necessities for a couple of years and see what happens. But I was fortunate within the first, by year three, I was at about a million in revenue. So, And we talked about a million in revenue. And right. for the folks that are listening going, that's not net. No, no. That's the joy is when you start doing well and winning contracts. I remember the first contract was like $2.5 million over five years. And my family's like, you won $2.5 million. And I'm like, I didn't win anything, really. The company has won a chance to work and earn that money over the next five years. And oh, by the way, I have employees. So that's where that goes. Yeah, and you know, then there's you look at all the overhead, anticipated, unanticipated. Yep. You know, if somebody raises the cost of something, it eats into your margin, and the government has a narrow view on they, margin. You, uh, for profit, it's against the law to charge more than fifteen percent. So fifteen is the max by law, and now you're competing with everybody. So start scaling down from there. You're lucky to get five to eight, then you're doing well. And I think about an increase in rent, an increase in utility bill, an increase in almost health care cost, any. Yeah, and with insurance, we have won a contract, fortunate to win a contract for U.S. Forces Japan. And the one thing you don't factor in is workman's comp that you pay for insurance in America doesn't work in Japan. So you have to buy something called Defense Base Act, which workman's comp is pennies on the dollar. We pay about 12000 a year for workman's comp, DBA for our overseas employees. So that's, that's a big difference in pennies on the dollar. And so, you know, you go, well, education is expensive. Yes, it is. In that world. And so you made the decision, right, to take in, the wife says, okay, I'll put up with you for a while, whatever. Yep. You know, God yeah. love them. I'll learn a few ways to cook that ramen. Yes. <laughs> Would you like some soy sauce in that? <laughs> exactly. Yes. Then, so you're sitting there with your business form, Digital Beachhead, 
What was the process like to go from, okay, day one, to I'm going to start chasing contracts? Well, it was... If that's the right term. Yeah, and it was eye-opening. I was ready to chase right away because I already knew how. So I was like, okay, I know how to respond to RFPs. But step one with federal RFP. request for a price or request for proposal, it's basically the government's requirements that you respond to. So I knew where to find them. I knew how to get them, but you have to register with the federal government. So I had to go through their database to get registered to be a federal employee. Then to become a service-disabled veteran-owned business, I had to register with the VA so that they could verify. Um, there's two types. You can self-identify, which is fine, but if you're VA certified, then everybody knows that, yes, indeed, you're not just saying you're a broken vet. <laughs> the VA also knows it. And they, those took a long time. It took longer than I thought. And you couldn't even start chasing work until you had at least the registration with the federal government to be a contractor. Then we funds. How do we run this business? We need money. Fortunately for us, we were a services oriented. So we were trying to win butts and seats. We would get a contract, hire the people to do the work. So we had no initial overhead of employees or other things to worry about. So my concern was when I do win that contract and I have employees to hire, how will I pay them? Because the government doesn't pay you if you're lucky in that 30 days, sometimes so in that 60 days. So you could get a bunch of contracts and go broke. 90, yeah, you won't see a dime for like 60 to 90 days. And I was going to banks who said, well, what is your collateral? And I had my laptop and my cell phone and said, this is my business. This is all I need right now. And they're like, thank you. Come back when you have something. And Did you find a lending institution that understand contracting? I, I have now. Yes. Uh, I funded it on my own at first. You know, you have to gut up or shut up. And so I <laughs> put the money in knowing, knowing that if you win a contract and you have that contract, that money's not really at risk because the employees get paid. Well, they're paid for work they did. The government will pay us for that work. So whatever I've put into the employees to be paid, even if they canceled the contract after a month, they might take me 30 to 60 days, but they would pay for that month of work. Yeah. So there's no real risk. I've since found a company called Street Shares. They're a veteran-run business. They will effectively pay payroll for nice. you on contracts you've won. So if you go to them and this is my contract, it's signed, we're ready, I need the money, they'll turn it around in two weeks and you have, you, yep. And they'll, they'll give you, a, if you need extra for miscellaneous insurance and other things, they can incorporate that too. But if all you're looking for is, I need to pay my folks for three months until the government pays me, yeah. they understand the business and they're like, yeah, we got that, we cover you. Good business model for them, too, and a nice thing for the contractor. Yeah, needs-driven. They have a, a program, if you uh, want to work with them that way, where they charge lower interest, but effectively they become your receipt. So the funds from the government go direct to them. They take out that first month of what they paid in the payroll, and then they just ship you the rest to your bank account, whatever you've put in for your profit line. So they're stride the cash flow. Right, and they just manage it all and take out their percentage, and it's an easy-peasy, you know, handshake deal. Once you get going, you, of course, don't you want to manage it yourself and keep that percentage for yourself. But when you're one guy in your home office wondering how you're going to pay a bunch of employees for 60 days. And that's not been your background? No. No, that was a learning process again. It was went to every bank in town, and can I do this, and how do I do that? And I've got a business plan. And I even went back when we won the first contract and said, here's a contract in hand. You know, when you were talking about your business plan, I was talking to an individual here in town the other day talking about various opinions on business plans and the quality thereof. Right. 
When you went in with your business plan, had you written business plans before? Only through college. While I was doing the five years with the big company, I also used my GI Bill and got my MBA. All part of that growing and learning as I was out. But I hadn't written one, but I effectively went in with a pipeline. My business plan, per se, was simple. Win government contracts. Make money. The real meat to me was going into the bank and showing like these are all possible contracts that could fit within my relevancy. This is my P-Win expectation across P-Win, percentage win, across what I think. And, you know, the 10 I'm chasing, winning two will get me this, therefore. Did they understand? They had a good understanding of that. They literally said, if you were starting a construction business, we could give you hundreds of thousands of dollars tomorrow because you'd buy equipment with it. Yes, they have collateral. Right. And uh, I, I tried to explain the... Okay, well then how about if I just win a contract? I don't cuz I don't need your money. I mean, I'm asking you for a loan, but effectively I don't need that loan until I have my first win and then I can tell you it's five people. This is the rate of pay, so over 3 didn't, months didn't fit their parameters. That does not compute to how they look at their lending, which I understand, it's not their n- normal business. And so you've got your shingle hung out for lack of a better term. That's right. You got your computer and your cell phone at home. And so you start looking for contracts in your area of expertise, which was what we call cybersecurity nowadays. I'm not sure that's the right name. but we, I tend to say cyber risk management because uh, nothing's secure. Yes. It's just somebody else is less secure. Go over there. Right. Yes. Yeah. You manage your risk. You can accept. Do you want all your door open, part of your door open, locked door with just a mail slot? You, know, you choose your security method. And so you did that. And so you put out some quantity of responses to the RFPs. Yes, I did. The spent a good first six months writing a lot. <laughs> so you've got this six-month window of writing, and I'm guessing you're writing into a vacuum at some point. There, You throw a lot of crap against the wall and hope something sticks. Do you remember when you got notification, and what was that like when you got your first contract? <laughs> it was probably, um, it picked up in May. Um, and you started in when? November. Okay. We got our first contract, and it was pretty damn exciting to know, like, hey, we got one, because what effectively that meant was now we have revenue. We can show revenue. Amazingly, all of a sudden, the bank started calling us. Hey, we see that you are a government contractor with known revenue. Do you need money for other startups or contracts? Which was a little upsetting at the time. We were like, what? I needed you. Where were you? I needed you three months ago, and I was a no one. Still understanding their business model, but it kind of just gave hope that the ramen could now, we could move up to real noodles. Um, we was were protein in there? Yeah, we were, well, we weren't quite up to the steak yet. Yeah, you know, we were yeah. thinking like, well, okay, we've got one. That means yeah. we can move from ramen to like real. And so the first contract, were you enough to manage the contract or did you have to get other folks to help? Nope, it was 100%. And it was full and open, meaning that it wasn't a set aside for a small business competed against the big boys and won, which kind of drove my business model from there was I could compete a bunch of other small businesses like myself, social economic categories that they put us into, mine being the service-disabled veteran, but they're also small businesses. And so I, I reckon that their, their overhead would be similar to mine, maybe a little more because I was new. And if they were further along down the line in business, they might have a little bit more overhead. But I knew that Booz Allen and Lockheed and Boeing and even the smaller, big businesses, you know, the 100 million to 200 million businesses, their overhead was a, a lot. And mine wasn't. 
and I knew that they had bid on, having worked in one of those companies, smaller contracts when times got lean, and they had 5 to 20 people person contracts. And if I could find those, now that I had work, so I have past performance, that's the hardest part in any government contract is showing you can do it and manage it, I could go after them and be competitive and maybe steal them back to the small business world. And so in your first year, how many contracts did you win after that May timeframe? I had one other large contract, which was a multi-year contract, and then about five service contracts short, just doing assessments or something, you know, limited in scope. And so you had that going, had cash flow. We had the cash flow. And luckily with the two big contracts, the butts and seats, that kind of keeps the lights on, knowing that you're making X amount of revenue every month with the little ones just filling in the gaps. So if you were, you know, sitting here today, how many years have you been doing this now? Four years. So let's say you could take your four-year wisdom and talk to you day one. Right. What advice would you offer to you day one? Oh, more research up front. What kind of research? For the financial. Okay, and understanding what the funding before problems I, were. Before I jumped, find street shares. Find people who speak your language when it comes to the financials. And patience, because you lose more than you win. That's the nature of the game. Some folks bid very infrequently. and Live and die on a contract win. Right, but they can say they have a 50% win, but they're bidding four a year, and they might win two because they're very limited in scope, where I would rather bid 20 and win 10 or win five. To be quite honest, you bid 20, you're probably going to win four or five, but that's four or five, not two. So knowing the business and, and understanding that I, where I thought being a small business was going to be a huge benefit, and while there are ways to work that, the competing with the big boys, don't be scared. Again, going back to my military thing is don't be afraid of what's behind the door. Just kick it in and figure out what's on the other side. When you look at the advantage of the big, the big boys versus the smaller boys, what's your, what do you think your advantage is? Costs. I can pay employees what they deserve with a lower overhead so that our overall costs are less. Yeah, I gave that up with the ramen. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. I actually, instead of buying the corporate jet, we did. We got protein oh, you in started, the ramen. Oh, oh, wait, wait. <laughs> we, we decided to put actual meat in our food. You know, that's kind of you. Those Air Force guys. Well, I was, I was fortunate enough. My wife's a pescatarian, so she only eats vegetables and fish. So it was pretty easy to keep her fed. <laughs> I'm a full-on meat eater. So, you know, so I, you know, I think about the journey. So you're sitting there at the end of, you know, from May to December. And so you're kind of in the saddle, got a contract going, and then you go to find people to fulfill your contract, assuming it wasn't all you. No, it, we have people actually out doing the work. So how did you find the people? That's another hard lesson. Luckily, I knew some folks, so the first few contracts I went after were ones where I kind of knew the individuals so I could fill them, making sure that the incumbents stay hired. And that's usually how I fill the slots, is I take the people who are already there, and I kind of do the invisible hand over their head test to the government, and if they nod, then they like that person, and I just want the contract. And if they kind of give me a shrug, then I have to go out and find someone that fits. But I do that work before when I'm actually building the proposal. I am out headhunting or using people I know who do headhunting to find candidates to fill the slot should we need to. You know, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We've been talking about your journey to basically from where you started. To ramen to meat. To turning the business on, you know, and just right. it's just the function of how do I start a contracting business. 
And now what I thought we might try to dig into is what does your business really focus on and what's the benefit to the contracts that you win? What do you do? For the government work, it is a lot of fulfilling whatever the government needs within the cyber or IT arena. For the specific contracts where we're doing assessments, we really focus on that cyber risk management where we go in and try to assess the risk of the entity that we are after, which is why I tried to move and I'm deciding to move into the small business to medium-sized business market is I'm trying to take what I've learned in the federal space and go to a small business and say, putting your head in the sand for cybersecurity or cyber risk management is no longer worthwhile. You mean hope is not a great strategy? Hope, hope is not the strategy. And Colorado last year passed a very stringent privacy law. And corporate entities are both civilly and criminally liable if they're breached for the loss of their records. And I don't know if small to medium-sized businesses are really prepared for that. So we try to come up with a fair and equitable cost solution instead of the full-on most cyber companies want to come in and break into your system and tell you every port they opened and every door that they could get through. Or I want to sit down with them and, and just discuss where they're at. What are their policies like? What are they doing for cybersecurity? And that's much more affordable. And it's actually taking some due diligence. So it helps them show steps towards due diligence because a lot of things could be low-hanging fruit. Having a password policy where they change their password every 90 days. If they tell their employees, yeah, it's a good idea, but they don't have a policy, they're not really meeting their criteria. So just coming in and talking with someone and saying that, saying, do you have that written down? Be wise to write that down. Well, you know, and for the small business owner, you know, you don't really appreciate it until you have a crypto blocker come in and sit on top of your files. And then you go, thank God I backed up. But you still have the brain damage of day or two or whatever you lost. If they got your backups. I know a lot of people who back up to an external hard drive, but if you forget to unplug that from your computer, they broke that too. Mm -hmm. Same with the cloud. If mm -hmm. you, like People use OneDrive. Yeah. OneDrive is on your machine. They just connect yeah. via your machine. And, and just follow it right up the right, chain. And everything's encrypted. And you know, you think about there's enough other commercial providers where you can back up to those. And you know, when you think about it, it's just a policy. Rather than do it, in, you know, I understand internal. Got that. But if you do this, and, you know, and I think about the business owners looking at their risks to as evaluation kind of thought process. If a buyer is coming in to look at a small business owner and they'll go, so what is your cybersecurity policy and what do you do and what's your process and all that stuff? And if they go, well, I got a thumb drive. The biggest one is disaster recovery. Mm -hmm. A lot of people might think backups, I have a thumb drive. But when you ask them, what's their disaster recovery plan, I have a thumb drive. Mm -hmm. That's not really a plan to how you get it back. Mm -hmm. That is a backup. But is your machine totally fried? Do you need to purchase a new one? Mm -hmm. You know, do you have the original Microsoft? You, those are your files, but what about the Microsoft that boots your computer up? Yes. Do you have that on a disk somewhere? Because if it's just a license that came with the laptop that you purchased, do you know where to go get that to rebuild your workstation? And <laughs> yeah. most people don't because it yeah. came loaded. Yeah. So they have their data, but they mm -hmm. don't have anything to put the data back on. And you've been doing some work with insurance companies that are trying to teach their customers how to take and address these issues. I would imagine, so I'm a business owner that has done absolutely nothing, and yet I've been told that I need to have insurance. What are the chances of me getting insurance without any of this? Well, I always liken it to, they'll probably give you the insurance because they're willing to take your money for the insurance. But when it comes time to pay out, it's like if I got drunk and got behind the wheel. I have automobile insurance, but they're not going to pay out if I'm drunk behind the wheel because I was negligent. If you're in your company and you take no action, you're negligent. They won't pay out. They won't pay for you to cover your data and 
a good dollar figure I use is the average is that you need to pay for three years of identity protection should you lose a record. Average cost of $20 to $25. So you have to do that for three years. So that's $720 a year for three years. And then if you say you have 100 records lost, a small business, 100 customers, data gone, that's $72,000. That's a good cost point. So if it's going to cost you $72,000 to lose 100 records on your system, do you really want to pay a couple grand for some insurance and maybe have someone come in and just give you the peace of mind so the insurance will pay you? Well, you know, if you have a robust policy in place, you've done some homework and have someone come on board, and you talk to an insurance company, do they take that into consideration on what they bill you from what you know? Right now, they're still learning this yes. whole cyber. So they're trying to figure out that equation, right? Because the insurance is basically an algorithm. And they don't have great algorithms when it comes to cybersecurity because um, there's so many different facets. Yes. Is it a hack? Did you get ransomware? Because ransom is different. than Was it a bad actor in the company? In. What it, was it? Exactly. There's so many different factors. Mm-hmm. So right now it's just like a general how much do you want of insurance? And then we have a – they have some sort of factor, but I don't know exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. But it's You know, I think about recently in the news – There's a well-known entrepreneur who actually got, I think, a file from, quote, a head of state, and it exported all of his information from his phone. Well, one of the first things we do if we're giving you a serious pen test at a a medium-sized company that has an office block is I'll drop USBs all over the parking lot and let someone pick it up and say, I got a free USB. What's on this? And if I really want to entice them, I put something like HR data or raises as a label on it and someone will put that in their work computer and now I'm in their network. It's simple, small things because we're human beings and we're failed and we all have our failures and our faults. And yeah, we take advantage of that to the umpteenth degree. You know, and, and so for you in, in the government contracting space, there's a number of different contracts that you've done, whether it's an exercise or a location or others, and you go and do similar things there as well. Yes, depending on what we're contracted to do with the Mm -hmm. government wanting us to do. Typically with the federal government, they just want us to kind of probe their systems, give them a good penetration test. We have done more physical Mm -hmm. penetration tests or hands-on, meaning... Send somebody in. Yeah, Yeah. versus just from across a wire. Mm -hmm. Can Mm -hmm. I get something into their network? Well, you know, and... and you know, there's a number of movies through the years, you know, what was it Red Shoes or something like that was out there and others. And, you know, you think about the sophistication or the lack of sophistication to get it done nowadays. And I think the average PC user, iPad user, doesn't really understand the level of accessibility to their tools. No, and, and how and what they're connected to. I mean, you go to a coffee shop and everyone's on the Wi-Fi. Well, everything they're doing, unless they have some sort of security software, is wide open. And yeah, airplanes, the same. When I go to a conference, if I'm speaking, if I'm guest lecturing at a conference, one of the first things I'll do is I'll put up my own Wi-Fi, Hilton One or something, and see how many people connect to me. And they pass through my computer to get to the real Wi-Fi. And I'm collecting all their data on the way. And I can begin my speech with, hey, is there Bob in the audience? Did you just recently go to uh, the Chase Bank? online and you always hear a gasp and you're like, yes, that's because you're connected to my laptop, not to the actual Wi-Fi. I was at a meeting yesterday and there was a Bluetooth thing for LinkedIn and you could go through and if you identified yourself in the group as available on Bluetooth, you could connect across the LinkedIn people right there in the group. That's right. And your Bluetooth is wide open and everyone's sharing data. Yep. That's why I say risk management. 
that's a great business tool at a conference if you want to connect with other people and just see who's around and instantly pop on our, grow our LinkedIn profiles and our connections. But there's a risk involved in that because it takes one of them to be a bad actor that's actually putting stuff on your machine. You know, and I think it's kind of people just don't know what they don't know. You know, it's not that they're mean-spirited people. It doesn't mean that they don't care. They just don't know. On the simple things that they do is weird email, don't open it. You know, and I'm sure you have tips, simple things not to do. Well, and that, that's the scary part about now is weird emails, don't open it. I would say if it's not something you're used to getting, don't open it. And if you have a question, don't, don't be afraid to ask. Yeah, and don't open it. Right, because a uh, recent time with that large company I was with, uh, they got hacked. The CFO supposedly sent an email to HR saying, give us all the W-2 information you have on that spreadsheet. And they did, 4,000 employees later. So my math, if you take that 100 and multiply it times the 4,000 employees, they had to pay for three years of identity protection. That was a pretty big bill. Well, you know, I think about the Equifax debacle. Exactly. And you kind of go, wait a minute. And they did the same. They paid for three years of data yep. for yeah. millions, billions of people, however many it was. However many. I think it was one in three in the country. Yeah. Now have identity protection. Thank you, Equifax. <laughs> So shifting, it's just kind of like, bah. you know, you kind of go, I, I had a buddy of mine says, you know, I think I'll just unplug my computer at night or something like that. And he goes, I'm not sure that's enough. And you go like, what? Well, and, if, if it's a laptop and it has a battery of its own and you unplug it, your Bluetooth and Wi-Fi might still be working. So it's not really enough. And then if you pull the battery out. Yeah, now we're talking. Then yeah. it's dead. Yeah, basically you have to un- unplug it, unplug it, power it down, unplug it, put it in a closet that's still reinforced so that no emanations can go through and. Yeah. And that's why, again, I go back to risk management. Well, you know, and, and I think about it. So if, if we're in an office building like we are now and somebody's a bad actor, you've done modest work where there's somebody else that hasn't done modest work, they're going to go to the low-hanging fruit would be my guess. Right. I refer to that as the uh, Ocean's 13, Ocean's 11 model, is you hear about those big heists, right? And watching the movie, of course, all the planning and the intricacies and everything it takes. And it can happen, and you'll make your million-dollar haul. But then I'll ask, how many times last night was a 7-Eleven robbed? And we don't know. But there were hundreds across the nation robbed. And they were low-hanging fruit. They didn't make millions, but they made enough. Well, it's pennies from heaven, right? Right. The fractional penny thing for uh, Eddie Murphy. Exactly. And so you do that enough, the percentage is 60% of all small businesses that are a breach go out of business within one year. Because it's just too expensive, both to their reputation and mm-hmm. physically, financially, to everything that happens. So you're basically, what they say about a motorcycle rider, there's those that have crashed and those who are about to crash or will crash one day. And so it's that philosophy. If you're a small business, it's not that you won't be hacked. It's when will you be hacked? It's just a matter. Eventually, they'll get Whether you know or you don't know. And that's the other thing. You don't necessarily know the the Marriott hack. Um, They were in Marriott for years. And it wasn't until they were purchased and they were trying to hook the two systems together that they realized, hey, something's wrong with your... Which, you know, you think about, so you've got this purchase agreement, right? And all the money and M&A and all the attorneys and everything else. And you've got an agreed upon or sort of agreed upon price. And all of a sudden, you find out you've got this massive data breach. What does that really do to the due diligence pricing process? Yeah. It discounts Who that. Who picks up that tab? It's, you know, it's when the seller. I sell my house and they realize that I have holes in my roof termites they're gonna say hey i think you need mm-hmm. to fix that before we finish this whole sale thing up or or give me so much back and so you know shifting gears a bit we were talking about where you're working out into the commercial space and so recently you've been working with some smaller communities and also business clients 
of various professional organizations. Yes. The biggest threat right now for small municipalities is being ransomware. There was 13... Baltimore, didn't they get... Baltimore? CDOT. Right here in Colorado, the Department of Transportation paid... Um, they were up to $1.5 million in recovery costs for a ransomware. They even called on the National Guard to help. The IT folks of the National Guard have helped, and that was to keep costs down, or it would have cost more. There have been 13 municipalities, I think, recently in Texas that have been hit with ransomware. You know, for, for a small municipality, if you want to take and just get started and kind of go, I need to work it into my budget to get done. What is a get started and a small community size? What should they be thinking about budgeting for that? I would say anywhere from five to $10,000 for a, a good assessment. It could be less if they're smaller. It's really the number of nodes. We say the number of workstations, okay. users, that really leads the price because the more things you have to go out and look at, the more it's going to cost. Also, the distinct number of ways you connect to the internet. If you're a small municipality, does your fire station have their own Wi-Fi compared to the city hall Wi-Fi compared to the police department Wi-Fi? Or are you on one consolidated city network? So there's little nuances, but if you, if, I would say if you wanted an assessment budget anywhere from 5 to 10, a lot of companies will want to come in and do what they call a penetration test where they actually break into your network. My advice is have an assessment first where we kind of can come in and just talk to you and see where your holes may be. I can break into your network and tell you where your holes are, but that doesn't really help you if you don't understand why you had them in the first place. So I prefer to come in, and that's how I developed like a phased approach so that they can afford the initial steps, take it in chunks. Chunk one is just an interview to go over some standards and best practices and say, are you doing this, are you doing this, and helping them grow into that. Um, Because my thing is if I know my front door is open, do I pay someone to shut it, lock it, and then say, hey, can you get through the door? Or do I hire the guy to say, hey, can you get through the door? Well, if it's open, they're through the door. Anybody we know can. that. It's, yeah. it's pretty easy. Yeah. You didn't really learn anything. Yeah. So I try to break it out in chunks. That's what I've taken from the federal government. The federal government, of course, likes to do everything. You know, We're going to take the full ball of wax, try to break in. We're a small business. You don't have that kind of funding to say, hey, yeah, let's pay the big it's money. It's basically one more tax on your revenue stream. And you didn't do anything different other than you have tools in here that are not as secure as you thought. So I would rather come in and discuss your policies and your procedures and what you're doing. And then like the next step would be, okay, now let me look at your machines, just hands-on. You said your people don't use Facebook, but on every government computer I walk through in your office, they all had Facebook open. So your policy might be in place, but you have no enforcement procedures going on. So policy versus an actual procedure. Then marrying those out, and then when you get to the end, say, okay, we've done this. We've taken all this advice. Now maybe we'll pay the money to have you try to break in because we think we've got it pretty buttoned down. And I think about whether it's municipality or business. So before I forget, if they want to reach out to you, how do they find you on social media? Um, We have a a LinkedIn page under Digital Beachhead or on Facebook under Digital Beachhead. And then my website is just www.digitalbeachhead.com, which is the easiest way to get a hold of us. So you go in and they contact you and everybody agrees. You come in and do the assessment. What's a typical time frame that they should allocate for an assessment? I usually say uh, one to two weeks for a a basic assessment. Again, depending on size of the organization. Mm -hmm. The bigger you are, the more it's going to take. So I'm my little hometown in Tennessee, and I have a normal quantity of nodes or whatever they are. 
So when you walk through the door to do your assessment, what should I expect you to be doing for some period of time? Well, to start, what I try to do is I have either the city manager or someone in a position of yay or naying decisions. I try to very much impress upon those folks that without that person, your IT people can answer questions and might know the, the smart answers, but they're not the ones who can make the decision. So I try to have the senior decision maker and whoever's in charge of the information technology, your IT Um, And we sit down and we just basically go through, I have a spreadsheet of 500 questions that we go through, covers all aspects of security from buying a computer, user management, to end of life of computers, encrypting, where you store your data. So the first part is probably one to two days of just interviews. Interviews, okay. And then, um, then I do external probing, just looking to see if I can see your network from outside. So you get on your computer and take a look. Yeah, a little knock You're not at standing the door. outside. Right. Little knock at the door. Virtually. Yes. Virtually knock at the door. And that's, again, not a penetration test, not a big sweep of... You're just looking at footprint. Just see, yeah, what do you exist. And I also go out to their websites. Um, many municipalities and small businesses even, you know, they're very proud. So they're like, you know, Mike Randall, and I'm the deputy mayor. Here's my email address. Here's my phone number. Here's my, well, all that's available now to a bad actor. So I try to educate them on digital forms or other ways to collect that information you want without publicizing your email address out in the open. There are spiders out there that will grab that, a spider being a computer program that just grabs just things off the websites. Yeah. And so you've gone in and done that, then you've done the assessment, and then when you come back, and there's a findings report, I presume. So you have a findings report. And then they go, holy smokes, we had no idea. Usually, I would guess. It's a 50-50. Usually they go in and say, okay, this is where we know we're broke. We don't know about this part. And then you give them another 50% of the answer. And so when you do those types of things, are there commonalities of problems that you typically see? Yeah, the biggest is having written policies. Most people have, they'll say they have policies. Like, oh, no, you have to have a nice password. And I'm like, okay, well, what do you mean? oh, we want it to be, you know, at least 10 characters and have special characters. Great. What's your policy on that? Do you have that written down? Well, no, we just tell people when they, you know, get their accounts to make sure they do it. Do you have anything stopping them from having password as their password? Well, what do you mean? And I'm like, okay, well, this is... So you do that. Just talk about that. So that's a challenge. No no written policy. Then I would assume no enforcement of written policy. The procedure. That's what I explained to them. You have policy that you write and say, this is the rule. And then you have procedure, which kind of helps us, the poor user, do what we must (laughs) correctly. And then when you get past policy and procedure, then when you start getting into, I would call it more esoteric stuff. That's when I get into like the social engineering. I send phishing emails out to all the employees. I have a couple different domains that are enticing for people to maybe click on and provide me some. I I tend to get pretty much innocuous information, but enough to show that they were willing to put up some decent info. And so I send that to all the employees and then see what percentage we get back. And even if they get a good report, as in it was 1% or 2%, I let them know it only takes one for that to bend a ransomware and and your network's down. And that's a recurring problem that it's all it takes is one employee, not even a malicious employee. Not at all. Oh, that's an interesting video. When I say we're flawed, because we like a lot of my stuff is based on you can win, you can win. But there's also the better nature, the better angels in us help Bobby with his cancer and click. And that's still wrong. That's not a malicious actor. That's someone who's trying to do something good for the world, maybe, but they shouldn't be doing it on their work computer. They shouldn't do it at home either, really, but... 
you know, it's, you, it's hard to trust now. Trust but verify. Ask yeah, questions. The, yeah, the freedom part of the computer and the convenience comes with, a, a very with pro- some a level cost. Freedom. You know, I think about the advent of all, of, like, Ring. That's correct. Yeah. And there's controversy around Ring. There's a website if you go to shodan.io. That's a website. It lists every open home device in the world. So if you want to go there and see your, try to find your home address, it'll tell you if you can see into your own house. Just creepy. Yes. It literally on that site, if you click on one that's open, you are look, watching someone's webcam. For very many reasons, I don't have webcams in my house. Right. One, I don't have any infants running around. And <laughs> if you're at my front door and my dog barks at you, I probably don't want to talk to you anyways. Right. But, but nonetheless. Good you know, alarm system. Yes. You know, the old-fashioned one. Right. You know, I, I think about that. And do you not get sometimes just a little bit overwhelmed about you? There's like this plethora of potential clients. How do you niche down? <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome, but it's. You, you know, but that's the challenge with everyone is no one. You know, I, I was thinking, we were talking beforehand, you recently went to a fairly prestigious event with regard to contracting and were recognized. Yeah. I think about, for many of the business owners, trying to discriminate. There's a lot of, exactly. quote, IT cybersecurity people. So for the business owner that's trying to discriminate, not badly, but they need, I, I need to pick somebody that knows what they're doing, is qualified, that gets, what questions should they ask a potential provider to make sure? I think just the human condition. Yes. Curious, typically helpful, typically good intent. Exactly. And then also going, huh, I wonder what's going on in this today. Well, a great example is locally in town, there was a company, Christmas time, the uh, secretary got an email supposedly from the CEO saying, keep this secret, but we're going to give out $10,000 of gift cards because we had a really great year. So go out and buy them. And then make sure you don't tell anyone. Scratch it off, take the pictures, give them to me. And uh, we'll give them out at the Christmas party. And so she did. But it wasn't his email address. The company lost $10,000. Well, there's currently the social security scam. Yeah. I think the bad actors are out there busy doing their thing and looking for vulnerable groups of people. Right. And in this case, the secretary thought she was helping her boss and keeping this big secret because we had such a great year. Mm -hmm. And how happy am I that we're going to give away ten grand to our employees as part of our Christmas party? And that's why I say trust but verify. If you get an email like that, Call. If your boss, yeah, call, or if your boss is in the same building, please get up, walk into his office and say, wow, that is awesome. You want to spend $10,000 and see if his face nods or explodes from what? <laughs> I think we could go on for a very long time talking about things that people could do. And I think the last question I'll ask is if you could put like an ad or a banner out on the one message that you would like to offer to the business community and small towns, what would it say and why? I would say think in, when you're worried about cyber, think about risk, not versus security, and managing your risk. So one, take a good look at yourself and know where your risk may be and decide which ones you can mitigate because you're never going to mitigate them all. Um, and based on the size of your company, you, may, you can't afford the $10,000 firewall that does all the super bells and whistles, but there is something you can do. So if you look at it in a chunk of risk management versus I need to do this big, big picture to fix everything because we're never going to get there. But if you look at it as risk management, I can do some things. Let me take some steps based on my size. Then you're doing your due diligence and that'll help, you know, should and when we eventually all get broken into one day. 
we can show that. We can say, I, I didn't do any, I didn't do nothing. I, yes. I took action. So is, I guess to wind it up, is there something that I should have asked you that I failed to ask you? No, I enjoyed the interview great. Again, I think everyone just needs to look inward because we are our worst victim. We are the one that will click that link. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the folks that are looking, they can A-B test all day long and they go, oh, they click on this one. Absolutely. And then when we send out the phishing emails, you know, like I say, we always get one. And or that's like all the it takes. Five-star tip, if there's a USB drive laying in the parking lot. That <laughs> says raises. Don't pick the don't don't yeah, pick it up. It, yeah, it's yeah. Or or if you feel you must, go to FedEx. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then when you plug it in, it's not on your system. Back away slowly and say, I'm sorry this didn't print and run. <laughs> <laughs> well, with that being said, so folks out there, you know, in the small business, you know, community and municipalities and so on, I would urge you to take advantage of the resource and reach out to take and engage Digital Beachhead to, at a minimum, at least get a starting point. Yeah, happy just to talk. The talking's free. So the biggest mistake you can make is not make the phone call. If you do nothing, you're liable. Yes. At the end of the day. So you have to do something. Got to start. Right. Got to start. I really appreciate no worries. you coming in, spending time with us today, Mike. Much success, and it was really an interesting journey, so thanks so much for your time. No worries. More to come. You bet.